All right, we uh, return to our series on a book that, quite personally, I think, kind of preaches itself. I think, I think um, you have to be uh, a pretty poor preacher not to make this story live. It just kind of carries itself. And uh, it, is a, it is a story full of ups and downs. And over the last couple of weeks, we saw a number of great downs for the people of God who are currently not even in their homeland. They're in the land of... Persia, and they are facing, quite frankly, extermination. They're facing annihilation at the hands of the Persian Empire, and particularly a man who hatched the plot to exterminate the Jewish people. His name is Haman, who received the sign-on of the king to exterminate the Jewish people. One Jew in particular that faces extermination is a man named Mordecai, who is the cousin of the queen of Persia, and her name is Esther. And where we left off, Last week is where a gallows was erected by Haman, about 75 feet high, in order to hang Esther's cousin Mordecai. And so we were left hanging, as it were, at the end of chapter 5, wondering what's going to happen to Mordecai. So, yeah, what is going to happen to Mordecai? Well, let's find out. Okay, chapter 6, uh, I want to draw your attention to verse 1, and we'll just read the chapter together. On that night... Let's just stop there for just a moment. This is on that night. What night? This is the night before Haman, who hatched the plot to exterminate the Jews and who wants Mordecai dead. It's the night before Haman plans to come to the king to get him to sign off on the death of Mordecai, on the gallows that he built. Okay, so it's on that night that the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes of the, and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead, on the ho um, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse that he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, 
But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, here we are just a little over halfway in this book of of Esther. And what we have going on in this chapter is what we might call a delicious irony. In other words, it's kind of an interesting twist that's going on here, um, a a, a turning of events. Because what we find is at the beginning of the chapter, Mordecai is down here, but by the end of the chapter, he's up here. At the beginning of this chapter, you got Haman who's up here and he's brought down here. And all through it all, and this is going to be a major theme of what we look at this morning, through it all we're going to see this again, which we see throughout the book of Esther, but especially in this chapter, we see the hand of God. Just moving things along, almost with, and I don't know if this is sacrilege, but almost with even a bit of humor, where he's just twisting these things around to serve himself and to serve his people, and in this case, to serve Mordecai. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting chapter because Esther really falls to the background here for a while. Okay, now, the book of Esther is one complete story, but at least in this chapter, she, she falls into the background, and, and what comes to the fore here is a very interesting interaction between the king, but especially between Haman and Mordecai. We're going to spl- or explore this in the story, right? So let's, get in, let's just dive into the story right away. Now, we read, as I said earlier, that on the night before Haman is to come to the king to get his permission to hang Mordecai and the gallows, something happens. The king's not able to sleep. Kids, uh, this is maybe, I don't know if you've heard of this word before, it's called insomnia. That's kind of a big word. Insomnia means when you can't fall asleep. Now, when you're a kid, a lot of times you don't have a problem falling asleep, right? I mean, most of the time. The thing is, is as you get older, and sometimes you'll hear this, maybe about your grandpa or grandma. When you get older, sometimes you'll hear older people say, maybe in their 70s or maybe their 80s, they have a hard time falling asleep. Sometimes they're just up all night. Now, we don't know how old Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, is, but on this particular night, somehow, right, you're going to see this during this, the preaching this morning, going to do this, it's in quotes, somehow it is the fact that the king can't get to sleep. All right, so what does the king do? He orders a sleeping pill. But this is not a sleeping pill that comes in the form of an actual pill, but it comes in the form of what we call historical records. The beginning of the chapter, if you take a look at that, I think it's uh, verse 1, yes. It says, the king gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, to be read. Now, maybe you're wondering, what is that all about? Well, the, the, the book of memorable deeds is basically just a, a bit of a recorded history of the kingdom of Persia. Things like, oh, I don't know, wars fought, battles won, battles lost, decisions that were made, taxes that were imposed, and these kinds of things. It's kind of like, um, it's like uh, in, in our circles, we have what, what are called uh, classes meetings. We have one coming up here, usually on average occurs a couple times a year, and we have one coming up that involves our church in a couple of weeks. And typically, it's, it can be a half-a-day affair or an all-day affair, and there's a lot of things that are discussed and a lot of things that are decided, and you have a clerk that records all the minutes of, 
of what went on in the whole meeting and at the end of the meeting typically what happens is you have the reading of what's called the concept minutes which is just a record of all what transpired during the day and it's very interesting when these concept meeting minutes are read you got sometimes just look at the guy spent a long day and it's been a long meeting and their eyes start to glaze over and sometimes they look like they're almost about ready to doze off it easily happens well such is the case here you got these historical deeds of the kingdom and the king is just he's getting sleepy and he's starting to doze and as he's dozing his ears grab on to something that was read in the historical records and it's basically this it's a record of what Mordecai did and I don't know if you remember this a couple of weeks ago if you were here but Mordecai overheard about a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus he just so happened to be there when the plot was being hatched again quotes and he tells Esther the queen he says to Esther you need to tell the king about this so she tells the king and in short order the king has this investigated and what happens after the king investigates this well he finds out that these men are guilty and yes these two men they're called Bigthana and Teresh they are hanged on a gallows just as Mordecai is about ready to be hanged and the king says to the young men who are attending him um, has anything been done <laughs> for Mordecai I mean this is quite an astounding thing that he did for me he, he basically saved my life has, has any kind of distinction or reward been given to him and the men who were around him said uh, well actually nothing and the king's thinking to himself this is not right this is ha this has to be rectified this has to be righted so the king then says who is in the court right now the court of the king in other words who can be the man to fix the situation and have Mordecai recognized? And it just so happened that Haman is in the court of the king. He just happened to walk in. And the king says, call Haman in. In other words, some of those left out in the story, but the king's basically saying, have Haman come in and he's going to take care of this. And he's going to give some distinction to this man, Mordecai. He's going to lift up his name. All right, now, you got to step back from the story here for just a moment and you have to say to yourself isn't this interesting that Haman just happened to be in the court of the king at that time what do we call this well a lot of people call this a coincidence right a coincidence is something that happens where you kind of go, oh, that's kind of weird. I just happened to be, <laughs> that person just happened to be there. I happened to hear that. Or it just happened to be that. That's a coincidence. Sometimes uh, people use the term coincidence or they say, oh, that, you know, that was a lucky thing for him and that, that kind of thing. You know, uh, what do you think about that? What do you think about when somebody says, well, that was a coincidence, or, man, boy, I was lucky, or that sort of thing. When, you, when you've been a part of the Christian faith for some time, you realize that, really, in the end, there's really no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as just, well, you know, a, a, a chance happening, right? Although sometimes we use that language. But, 
But if you think about it, a, a coincidence or luck or a chance happening presupposes or assumes that we live in a universe that is controlled by random forces, that just things can't happen, that they're outside of our control. But Christian theology and Christian doctrine, Bible doctrine basically tells us there's really, honestly, there's no such thing as chance or luck or coincidences but what we find in christian theology and and the the more you grow as a christian whether whether you are raised as a child in a christian family or you come to faith gradually later in your life you begin to see that that there is this going on in your life and in the world we call it the hand of god we call it the finger of god right let me give you let me give you a quick example of that in the life of a man, and I've mentioned him before, a historical figure called Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was um, a young man who was very, well, he was a young man at one point, was very intellectually gifted, and he was also a pastor. And I don't know if you know this, some of you have heard of Abraham Kuyper, maybe some of you know a little bit about him, but when Abraham Kuyper was a younger pastor, he was, he was what we call a progressive, he's a liberal, who really undermined the supernatural character of the, of the Christian faith. It was, it was arguably, was wonder if he, even if he was a Christian at all at that point, although he held the position of pastor. And there was a local university that um, uh, was willing to give a, a prize for the best essay revolving around a Polish reformer called John Alasco. And it required that those who entered into the essay contest do a lot of research, and that's what Abraham Kuyper did. In order to get research on, on this obscure figure of John Lasko, he had to go through all the reputable libraries throughout the Netherlands and all the reputable, well-known libraries throughout the continental Europe. And he did that for a number of months. And he went from library to library, and when he came back, he realized, indeed, even before he came back, that he simply could not find any primary sources or even much on secondary sources regarding this person of John Alasco. And he's quite despondent at that point, so he, he came to one of his professors and he talked to him about that, and the professor said this. He said, you know what? I, my father-in-law is a pastor, and as a pastor, he's got a pretty good library. You should check out that library. And Kuiper's thinking to himself, why would I go to that library? And in fact, I've been to the best libraries throughout Europe and in the Netherlands. But he figured, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. So he went to that pastor, and the pastor had heard that Kuiper was going to come. So the pastor went through his library, gathered a few books, and he put it on his table. And when Kuiper came to see him, and he started to look at those few books on the table, he was astounded. And this is what he said. Can you put the quote up before it? He wrote this. He says, I could scarcely believe my eyes. I searched all the libraries in the Netherlands. I looked at the record of rare books. And I was told Alasco's books are simply copied and that no original manuscripts have been seen for 200 years and were probably lost. And then as, a, as by a miracle, I was brought face to face with a richer collection of Alasco that could be found anywhere in all of Europe's libraries. The pastor hardly remembered that he had them in his possession and barely remembered the name of Alasco. And now I know what it means to have a divine miracle confront him in his path I could no longer deny that there was such a thing as this, the finger of God, which was quite something for a classic liberal theologian to admit, one who denied the supernatural and the sovereignty of God, and now he realized that the finger of God was at work. This is something that Haman did not recognize. 
nor king ahasuerus or largely the people of god for that matter in persia well there is more is going to be said about this kind of thing which i'm talking about now called the providence of god will be looking at that in the weeks to come let's get back to the story so we have haman called in before the king and what does the king say to haman as we follow along in the story the king says to Haman, now this is interesting because you have to pay close attention to the very wording of the Bible and the very wording of this story. The king says to Haman, whom would the king, uh, no, uh, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now if you get your Bible, you have your device, take a look at verse 6. He does, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, now he knows that the man who spared his life was the one who discovered the plot to assassinate him. That was Mordecai, but Mordecai's name's not mentioned here. He could say, what should be done for this man named Mordecai, who I delight to honor? He doesn't say that. He says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, this is a significant point, and probably, again, one of those coincidences that the king doesn't mention Mordecai's name because now Haman listens to this and Haman is thinking oh that's the way of king the king saying to me how can I honor you actually the king is not talking about Mordecai here he's alluding to me and Haman's thinking about this and he's thinking well this is kind of delicious this is awesome now I'm going to finally get honored by the king. So it's, it's interesting because now that Haman thinks that he's going to be honored to the king, when the king says, what should be done for this man, namely you, Haman, to be honored, Haman's thinking, well, this and this and this and this should be done. See, his pride is coming out. Now I want you to take a look at verse 7. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, number one, let royal robes be brought, which the king has actually worn. Secondly, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Number three, let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and then let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead on the horse to the square of the city, and then also proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> so, so Haman saying, thinking about himself, well, king, if you, want to, if you want to honor me, do this, and do this, and do this, and do this, and do this. And the king says to Haman, basically, that's a good idea. So take care of it. And do it for Mordecai the Jew. Now again, paying close attention to the story, you would think that the writer of the story would involve some details about what Haman actually thought at that point. But he doesn't. Haman just carries out the command of the king. But can you imagine... This is why when you go through the story, you have to pause a lot of times and, and use your imagination. Start thinking to yourself, what must have been going on in the mind of Haman when he's, the king said, actually, it's not you who are going to be honored. It's actually your arch enemy, Mordecai the Jew. Man, talk about a slam. That's exactly what we find here. So what does Mordecai do? Carries out the command of the king. 
And he puts the royal robes that the king has worn on Mordecai, puts them on a horse, leads a horse through Susa, the capital. And you wonder, were there hundreds of people doing this or praising Mordecai? Thousands? Who knows? All we know is that this was a supreme humiliation for Haman. So he goes back to his wife and he calls his friends together and he moans and he groans before them. Poor Haman. You know, we have to, again, push the pause button here and we have to look at the heart of Haman. Maybe his heart's not so different than ours. What's going on inside Haman? What's he struggling with? Sometime, um, I would love to do uh, a series here on what are called the seven deadly sins. You may not know what those sins are, but maybe at least you have heard of them. There are four deadly sins. By the way, theologians call them deadly because what they are is they are sins that diminish the soul. And ultimately, if they're not dealt with, destroy the soul, to destroy the person. And they are basically root fundamental sins that are actually sins from which there are branch sins that spring from these fundamental sins. Four of those deadly sins are these. The first one is the one sin that from which all the other sins arise, and that's a sin of pride. There's also anger, avarice, really a, a lust for riches and material things, and envy. And when you study those, you see that this is exactly what Haman is dealing with. And they are, they are causing rot in his person. And the only way that we, the only way that Haman can be freed from these fundamental rotting sins in his life is if he comes absolutely to the end of himself and he comes clean with God. But this is exactly what he, he simply refuses to do that. So, because of this, and guys, listen, when, whenever, whenever we have deep-seated sins in our lives that we are not really dealing with what happens over time is we just kind of collapse in on ourselves. We implode. And this is what happens to Haman. Haman moans. Haman groans. Haman comes before his wife and friend and, and his friends and his, his head is hanging low. His head is covered. His absolute dejection and humiliation and rot. And then as we come to the end of the story, what do we find? His wife Zeresh and his friends say something really, really quite interesting. Look at the very end of the chapter. They say this, if Mordecai, now this is rather prophetic, 
If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. There was an understanding, probably among the Persian people, and certainly among Zeresh and Haman's friends, that there was a certain light that was shining upon Mordecai. There was, there was a form of favor showed upon him. Now again, remember what I've said over and over in this book. The name of God is never mentioned. Never mentioned. And here, too, the name of God is never mentioned. Yet God is for his people, even in their disobedience. But at least Zeresh... And Mordecai's friends, or Haman's friends, recognize that this, again without mentioning his name, that this finger or this hand of God is upon him. And no matter what you try to do, you will not win against this man. And you will not win against the Jewish people of which he is a part. And you know... Um, I think there are many times, and this is a biblical concept, I think there are many times where people among the nations of the world look at Christians, they really don't understand much about Jesus, they don't understand much about the faith of Christians, they don't understand much about the worship these Christians enjoy, but they do recognize that those people in their neighborhood who are Christians and who are genuine Christians at that tend to be a people who seem set apart from others. And a people whom God's favor by means of his hand is upon them. What are we called in the Bible? We're called the apple of God's eye. And when we are in the eye of God and we are committed to Jesus, this hand is upon us not to destroy us like Haman, but to bless us. I want to leave you with these two things at the end here of this chapter. Number one, what do we see? We see once again, you're going to get tired of hearing this, but over and over again, we see the hand of God. We see the fingerprints of God all over the story of this chapter and all over the story of Esther. And it is this hand of God that, that simply orchestrates all things in our lives. And we see him orchestrating all things in this book. And when the God's hand works in this world and works in our lives, orchestrating all the matters that occur in our lives. Sometimes God brings about his purposes in our lives, sometimes despite us, sometimes outside of us, many times through us and the decisions that we make. But always, always, and I want you to understand this, in the life of the child of God, this hand is always ultimately for us. For us. How does Romans 8 put it? That God works out all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So if you are here this morning and you've not committed your life to Jesus and you are not committed your life and your worship to either this church or any other church, always know this. That when this hand comes down upon you, and this hand is heavy, the reason why the hand 
is heavy upon you is so that you might come to the end of yourself and realize what Haman needed to realize, that he has no true blessing and no true joy and provision apart from the hand of God and the hand of God that works through Jesus, whom we all need. Apart from Jesus, you have nothing. With Jesus, you have everything. Now, opposite of that is that for the child of God, when this hand comes upon you to bless you, but also when this hand is heavy upon you, what the, what the, what the Puritans called at times the frowning providence of God. When the frown of God seems upon you and the hand is heavy upon you, always realize that in the life of the child of God, this hand is not ultimately meant to destroy you, but to refine you, to shape you, to draw you to your Savior Jesus and God's providential goodness. And ultimately, it's designed to comfort you. As, as one person once put it, that when the thorns of life press down upon our scalp like they did with Jesus, they are always designed to prepare us for something better and ultimately to prepare us for heaven. So when difficulties come, and, you know, when, when Brent was praying earlier, remember he mentioned a number of things that we face. And I'm always reminded, every church I've ever served, whenever there's a congregation of prayer, Lord, we pray for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so this person going through this difficulty and that person going through that struggle, that, that's just part of being human and being part of the human race and being part of the church, right? But always reminded in the midst of those prayers that when these difficulties come, they don't come by chance, but they come for our refinement to draw us in deeper faith and commitment to our Savior who promises us that we are engraved upon his very palms and nothing will let us go from the grip of our Savior. And then finally, very briefly this, in this story we see something once again about the power and the presence of God. And sometimes, again, when we are facing dark times, especially like Mordecai, where he was like this far from going to the gallows. When we are in the dark darkness and the, the valley, as the psalmist says, the valley of the shadow of death, there are times when we are in that valley where we theologically we say, yeah, God is real and God is present. But at that time, he seems very far away. And is God powerful? Yeah, we confess theologically God is powerful. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. But at this point in my life, he seems particularly weak. Always remember this. God can change things on a dime. He can shift things just like that. God, the God whom we serve, is a God of surprises, and he's a God of ironies. And it's precisely what we see in the life of Mordecai, and this is precisely what we're going to see in the life of the Jewish people, and this is something precisely that we remember, that we need to remember as the children of God. In light of these beautiful truths, what else can we do but to draw near to this God who calls us to himself, and we would draw near to him. He says, there you are in the cup of the palm of my hand. And there you will stay. So that no matter what befalls, you're there. And you're mine. You're mine. More on that in the weeks to come. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you, O God, for always displaying the gospel to us every week, even in the midst of this story of Esther. Lord Jesus, you've paid the price 
of your very life for us. And you've done that, O oh Lord, because you love us. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, help us to trust that. Of course, when the times are good, but especially when the times are rough for us, knowing that nothing, as the Bible says, in all of created reality can separate us from your love. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.